0: We're in the scriptures, Malachi chapter 1. It is in the crispy part of your Bible. (laughs) Not too many people I know are studying Malachi 1. If you don't know where it is, just find the Gospels, Matthew, go left, you're there, right? Chapter 1. Now it is only four chapters long and we're only doing six weeks in this series on on Malachi so you might make the wrong or the mistake that somehow therefore Malachi doesn't have much to say. I would suggest to you that you're dead wrong. It has a ton to say Um, so I want us to prepare ourselves for that. In order to do that I thought what I would do is teach the entire Old Testament this morning. And I'm not kidding, really. It'll be brief, maybe four or five minutes. But I I thought it would be good to make certain we know where Malachi fits in the grand story. Because sometimes it's just random people and we don't know how they fit or why they belong there. Or why God would give someone like Malachi something to say to Israel. So let's just back up and run at it. If you start sort of at the beginning, Genesis chapter 12, you, you find this man named Abraham, which we're all familiar with. Abraham is a man that God looked to, that God chose and picked and promised him something. I'm going to give you many descendants, great nation. You know the whole story. Big problem. Abraham was old and they didn't have any kids. And so how does does something like that happen? Well, God does what he does. He does miracles. And he gave Abraham a son named Isaac. And uh, God begins to do this special work of making his people a a special possession of his. And Isaac grows and... uh, and the promise continues with him years later through many, many circumstances. The people of God find themselves in Egypt enslaved under Pharaoh. You know this, right? And after 400 years, God sends a spokesperson, a man to kind of lead, to, to, to be the representative of the people. His name is Moses. And he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And you know how this turns out. They, they're let go. And God ultimately fulfills his promise to give Israel the land as well. And so... Hundreds of years pass by, all the while Israel struggles to find their life with God as king. Just, just so you know, that, that theme rings over and over again when you look at Israel. And it clearly has some implications to us because we do the same things. God has shown himself, shown himself, been faithful, been faithful, give commandments, and yet Israel loses its way about God as king. Eventually the people start begging God for a king like all the neighbors have give us someone like that. You know, give us someone like that. I mean, we're, we're kind of embarrassed that we don't have a king. And so God kind of relents and lets them have a king. They pick Saul. And the reason why they pick Saul is because he fits the suit. To be really honest, he's big and he's strapping and he looks like a king. And you know how it ends for Saul. It doesn't end well. And he fails miserably. And then God picks a king. And God picks David. And David was different. David then becomes, he sets the tone of worship and devotion for God's people. God actually said to David, this is a man after my own heart. Be like David. And in David's command, in David's leadership, Israel grew in length and breadth and depth and width. And it just became something. You know, his son Solomon was born, the wisdom of Solomon. And I think Israel flourished under Solomon. Solomon dies. And after he died, the kingdom is split in two. Ten northern um, tribes, Israel, and two southern tribes, Judah. And guess what happened to Israel? Israel struggled to find their life with God, and they disobeyed and they dishonored God. So God does what God does as a father. He allows the Assyrians to conquer the northern ten, and the text just tells us it scatters them. All ten. The southern tribes, Judah... We know how this turns out. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he comes in. He conquers Jerusalem and the southern tribes. And he takes in possession, as slaves, people of Israel. And then he burns the house down. He destroys Jerusalem and he destroys the temple and he leaves it with nothing. And there you have it. The people of Israel are sort of back where they started. Without a place. And enslaved. Which is a grand kind of way to kind of look at the story of, of our life, you know. When we dishonor, disobey, disregard God, we kind of end up in the same pit that God found us in. Ring a bell to anybody? Yeah. Well, it's, that's Israel. But God, who is relentless and who is forever faithful, he keeps his commitment to Israel, and after many years, God's people are allowed to go back home. Their, rebe- their return included the gathering of God's people Back home, it also included the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. And in that season, God gave these prophets to speak for him to the people, um, what God concerned himself with. And it was sort of like just one message: return to me completely. Like you've been all over and you went away for the wrong reasons and all that. Just just come back and come all the way back. Don't stop short in your kind of pursuit of me. So that's where Malachi fits in the story. Malachi happens to be the last prophet in a long line of prophets who've been telling the people one kind of one-trick sermon. Repent. Repent of your sins. Because what Malachi reveals to us is sort of a state of the spiritual union of Israel at the end of the Old Testament. And I just want you to know, and if you've read ahead, you know it's not good. This is not a happy time for Israel. Um... Malachi prophesied about 100 years after the prophets that precede him, Haggai and Zechariah. And he was a prophet like all the others, but I think there was something unique about Malachi that, that at least as I read it, kind of stands out. And I kind of want to give us a little bit of that, a few reasons why I think he's unique in his call. First of all, it should be obvious to you, but Malachi is the last word of God for his people until God goes dark for 400 years. Now, I'm certain Israel didn't know God was going silent, but we do. So just think about this. Anything important, anyone that you think is important when they go, this is my last word, everyone kind of leans in and sits up. And What could he be saying? What could, what could be deeper or important to us? So that's Malachi, the prophet. From our vantage point, we see that once he's done talking, God is, in effect, done talking to Israel until the Messiah comes, and he comes in the flesh, God the flesh, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Rescuer problem solver he comes in Matthew right so I think that makes him unique I think it makes him unique also again I've said this but all the prophets they preached the word and they told God's people to repent clearly but Malachi seems to reveal a more truer more brutal depiction of the condition of men's hearts than the others yeah, we find sin, yeah, the call, but, but, but you see some things in here that kind of stick out and we're gonna deal with that this morning and a little bit later, but one last thing that I think makes Malachi unique is Malachi looks, in a, like you see through a lens the past and the future. The past is the most obvious part of this. Where Israel has been, what they are, their wandering ways, their godless behavior, and the victim mentality that sinners carry around with them. It isn't my fault. God, I'm not responsible for them. You are, or they are, whatever. The way do we push blame and and don't own our own conviction, that shows up in Israel and in, in Malachi's words. And then there's a lens to look forward. To see the provision for the curse of sin. Because in Malachi chapter 3. You see Malachi and chapter 4. You see Malachi talking about a messenger to come. An Elijah to come. And Malachi is looking forward to John the Baptist. Who introduces us to the Redeemer. Do you understand? So it's a wonderful picture. Of, of how God not only confronts our tendencies. And our condition and where we are. And he comes right after that with. But I got a solution. Do you understand? That's that, that what's what makes Malachi I think very unique. All right, let me be a little bit more clear on how Malachi differs, I think, than other prophets. Again, not to be too repetitive, but if you're a prophet, you have a job. God said this. So you say to the people, do these things, that's sort of one of the tasks. The other thing is basically God calling people out on their sin and a call to repentance. But in Malachi, what seems so shocking to me is it represents the people of Israel in a somewhat clueless and that's probably even too gracious and more defiant state than almost any other uh, place you find a prophet confronting Israel. I'm not saying they weren't. I'm just saying you see it more clearly here. Let let me show it to you. We're going to flip around Malachi just quickly. This will be why we kind of shape our sermons the way we do. There is a statement by God that he makes throughout Malachi and a response by the people. You don't, just tell me if you don't think this is crazy. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. God says, "I have loved you," but you say, "How?" Just note to self: don't say "how." All right. Look at verse uh, verse six and seven. He's, God's talking about being a father. He says, "Where is my honor? Where is the fear?" Your priests despise my name, but you say, "How? How has that happened?" He tells him, you've offered polluted food on the altar. How? This is Israel responding to God's statement and accusation. Chapter 2, verse 17, you've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how? Chapter 3, verse 6, God's call, as all prophets do, return to me, and I will return to you. But you say, How? How are we supposed to come back? And God says, well, start with your money. You're robbing me. How? Are anybody irritated with Israel at this point? You should be. Chapter 3, verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how? That should bother you. Do you know why? Because it's in you. Every place you find yourself in rebellion against God, there's a reason why you do it. You justify it, you blame your wife, you blame your husband, you blame your kids, you blame your job, you blame your health, you blame the culture, you blame the political system. You blame. God, I have a right to my whatever it is. and God says, no, no, you don't. And you say, how? That's what you find unique in Malachi. It is severely convicting. Every time I go to the preaching collective, I want to take vacation because I walk out feeling very convicted. So let's dig into this passage. And I've got a very simple three-point outline to help you understand the first five verses is all we got in front of us today. Here's point number one. Point number one is brace yourself. God has something to say to you. Point number two, God loves you with an everlasting love. And point number three, God proves it with grace and mercy. You got it? Brace yourself. God loves you. He proves it. Okay? You get that. Look at verse 1. The very first verse. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The reason why I said the first point should be brace yourself. God has something to say is the very second word in verse 1. The second word looks harmless. It says oracle. The word really means burden or an utterance of doom. You know who wrote verse one? Malachi did. God starts speaking in verse two. Malachi's just kind of sitting at the table like, oh my gosh, what God gave me to say, it's a burden. I can imagine being the spokesperson for God. I "I don't want to tell him that. (laughs) I don't want that job. I'm just picturing the moment that God's done speaking. Malachi goes, okay a uh, burden, announcement of doom. That's how this is gonna go. And why would he say that? Because the word of God is never easy. It can't be trifled with. It's heavy stuff. Just, uh, let me just go through quickly a list of the accusations God brings against his people in four simple chapters. Your worship is sick and fake. You're going through the motions. God's priests God's pastors are fake. They're not godly and they're discipling the, the, the people of God to be ungodly too. Now you know why I want to take a vacation. God's people aren't faithful. They're complacent and they're cold. You have failed in your marriages. How? Husbands are abusing their wives. They're controlling and they're being treacherous and God sees and God hates you accuse God of failing you. You rob God of what belongs to him and your money and your ties, and you pretend the whole time like you're doing it right. As bad as that is, you fake your religious life to convince others and yourself that everything's just okie-dokie. But it isn't. And you know it isn't. I feel for Malachi, to be honest with you, I kind of picture those of you who work in the medical profession and you get the report back, you know, that staggering report that someone might have cancer. And your next meeting is that person, and you've got to look them in the eye and go, stage four. Those are words of doom. You would look at them and go, oh, my gosh, this is too heavy for me to tell them. I don't want to go through this process. And, and yet beyond just the report, you have to kind of sort out how they're going to react. And Malachi knew. I think He knew. He knew how the people cling to their happy, clappy, everything's okay with me religion. He knew they weren't taking God seriously, and he knew they preferred it that way. They were just where they were. We're God's people, but we're not serious, and we're not holy. We got Bibles in our hands. We go to church on Sunday, but we're not serious. I, don't, I mean, I, I, I was writing this down on Thursday. I go, I don't know what I'm supposed to say here, because this is not going to be any fun. And, and just, just so you know, you might hear this over the next six weeks and truly resist it. I can't control that. You might conclude that somehow I or we have an agenda. I don't. I'm not smart enough for agenda. I'm just trying not to get in the way of what God has said. But God has said. And, and to be fair, you might not have read Malachi before or it's been a long, long time. Let me just tell you, if you pick it up, it's going to look like you're reading 2020 church life. I, I sat in Preaching Collective on Wednesday. I do every Wednesday. And the burden that I feel, and I'm not trying to exaggerate it, it's just so overwhelming. It convicts me to my core. It convicts us. And I, I just felt like, okay, God, I gotta tell them. I don't wanna tell them Words of doom. Good morning, welcome to church. Well, I wanna be clear about some things. Let's, let's just anchor ourselves to the most solid footing, Okay. Whose word is it? Look at what it says. The oracle of the word of... Don't be chicken. Don't be scared now. Whose word is it? It's the Lord's word. What do you do with the Lord's words? Let me just suggest one simple task. You hear it. And I would tell you not with your ears. You hear it with your heart. If truth doesn't make the trip 12 inches down to your heart, you're not hearing the Lord. You'll be caught... And guilty, exactly like Israel, if all you do is let it go in your ear and into your cognitive understanding, if it doesn't change your heart, you are not hearing the Lord, okay? And I'm sorry if I'm coming across the tenth, It's what I am, but it's how God has put it on me. So I'm just gonna say it. Hear it. It's God's word. So I just want us commit to each other that we won't deflect God's charges. When God says something to you, don't you put up the force field and blame it on others. Don't you blame it on your circumstances or the story that you've got or the people around you. Don't blame it on your culture or your politics. Don't blame it on stuff. Own it. Can we agree to that? (laughs) Can we agree to that? Okay, good. Now, it might come as a surprise to you that when I was a boy, I got disciplined by my dad as much as I got fed by my father. My my grandma called me busy. It's funny, my dad never used that word um, to describe me. But here's what happened. Here's what I knew. Like every good dad, I always knew my dad loved me before he spanked me. Always. What you have in the first five verses is the Father in heaven doing the same thing before he gets really blunt with his people. Before he unpacks all the accusations and all the ways in which they got trouble, he says out of his mouth, the first thing, hey, remember... I love you, now bend over. That's that's what happens in chapter one, one through five. Look at verse two. This is how it starts. I have loved you, says the Lord. What did you hear? Sermons by the thousands could be written on that four-word sentence. You you might be confused reading that because it almost sounds a little bit frightening. I have loved you, like, uh oh, it's over. Like it's it's done. But you'd get the tense of the verb wrong. It's a perfect tense verb, meaning that God did love in the past, He does love you now, and He will always love you. That's the verb. God isn't saying it's over, He's saying it's continuing. He's always for them. In fact, it's impossible to read this emphatic statement of God without it being an action. It's always present, always present for his children. Perhaps you remember or recall the psalmist in Psalm 136 when he talks about these wonderful 26 statements of what God has done and who God is for his people and God's people always responded back to him with this amazing confession. Your steadfast love, what? Endures forever forever. Your steadfast love endures forever. 26 times, almost maddening monotonous. Your steadfast love endures forever. That's what he promises. Perhaps you remember Romans chapter five. Paul says that God's love has been poured out on our hearts in the Holy Spirit, poured out, dumped on. First John three, how great is the love the Father has lavished, lavished on us. Ridiculous giving of love, that we should be called the children of God. And that's what you are. The most famous verse, John 3, for God so loved, the end of John 3, here's how he loved, he gave. No greater depiction of love in the world than a friend gives his life for another, and that's Jesus, that's God for you. The overwhelming weight of the scriptures is God's love, God's presence for his people. And God starts that way before he brings the conviction. Now you would think just hearing that, just those four words that the people of Israel go, oh my gosh, let's have a worship service. That's amazing, but they don't do that. Look at their response. Verse two, but you say, how have you loved us? If you're not careful in reading this sentence, you'll read it the wrong way. You might read it like a neutral statement or like a confused, insecure question. You know, we've had relationships like this, you know. No, really, really, how, how have you loved me? And you're just kind of wanting to hear it, be reminded, of. that's not at all the demeanor or attitude behind this question. It's a statement, and if you can believe it, it's an accusation. The people of Israel are looking at God going, how have you loved me? Anybody intimidated? No. Like a scorned spouse in anger, you have never loved me. That's the demeanor behind this this question. Now let me stop us all before we get too judgmental with Israel and ask a few questions. Have you ever questioned the love of God? Probably. Have you ever had trouble run so deep in your life that you became angry with God? And so you conclude that maybe you're certain he doesn't love you? You know how it goes. I mean, we hear this stuff. We experience these things. God, in their anger, how have you ever loved me? I've got problems in life and at work in my home, and I've prayed, and you don't answer. And just by the way, just a little note, God, I don't deserve this. I do this, I do this, I do this. I've been there, I've been there. I give this, I give that. I pray that way, and God, I don't deserve this. God, my, my husband, my wife has cancer, and this is, what am I supposed to do with this? My kid, I love my kid, but my kid's going to ruin his life. He just can't sort it out. And I've asked you to redeem him. I've asked you to rescue him. And they're just not coming to it. And what am I supposed to do with that? My marriage, Father, is a wreck. It's a total wreck. And I'm trying. How have you ever loved me, God? That's a very common experience, very common tale. And it's exactly what Israel's processing, I think, at this moment. They're so close to their immediate circumstances and so wrapped up in their superficial religion that they've lost their heart and their perspective on God in the grand story. I can't see. You know, it's like, how do you know what color a wall is when you stand this close? You don't. You've got to get back. People are so into their particular circumstances, they can't see the grand narrative speaking a louder, better word. God loves them. You can't see it. And that's kind of the rule of thumb. Sin and suffering can cause a lot of confusion. Amen. Yeah. So let me ask a question. Are you listening? Like if we stop right now, did you hear what I just said? God loves you. Did, does, and will. Nothing can change that. Nothing can separate you from his love. You can't out sin it. You can't outrun it. His love is faithful, his love is eternal. And it's not because of you. He is. Now, to be fair, if you're just kind of working through the story here, that's pretty much all that needs to be said. I love you. End of story. And Israel's accusation or question accusation doesn't even deserve an answer, in my opinion. Like, if I'm God, I walk away from the conversation. But God does answer. In his graciousness, he does, and he illustrates his love with a reminder. Look at verse 2 through 5. This is his answer. Now, this might sound absurd to you, but listen to it, and then try to get your head around it. How have you loved us? God says. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I've loved Jacob, and Esau I hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear it down, and they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever, your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. In other words, even God's judgment will be seen as a way to praise the Father, okay? Okay? The story of uh, Jacob and Esau is recorded in Genesis 25. Don't have time to go there, but perhaps you know this. We're not too far from the story I told you before. Abraham has Isaac by a miracle. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, can't have kids, so God does another miracle to a barren woman and gives two kids, Jacob and Esau, which is another message for another time that every time God brings life, he does a miracle. He does a miracle to, to, to fulfill his promises, and that's what happens here. But all that God says is this. To the question, how have you ever loved us? God loved Jacob with grace and mercy. And Esau, he didn't. And that's his answer. And that's it. It's it's the answer to the question, how have you loved us? So let me ask you this. Is that enough for you? Because that's all he tells them. If you're struggling, wondering if God loves you, is it enough to hear that he has preferential love for you? Because that is his sovereign, all God knowing answer to this accusation. Don't you know I'm in this forever? Don't you know when it has nothing to do with you? Don't you know I'm keeping my commitments? His response is just two simple sentences. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? And yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. If you're honest, that sentence trouble, troubles us and makes us happy. It's a good and a bad sentence, to be honest with you. The good's pretty obvious. I've loved Jacob. Everyone loves that. Whenever God points his affections on things, yes, God, love. That's what you're supposed to do. Love, 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 love. And he says he loves Jacob. And here's why that is such good news. Because it's an in spite of love. Because it's a, it's a... Not because of love. And everyone in every corner of the world wants that kind of love. And you know it's good news. Let me remind you what the Apostle Paul talking about this same kind of scenario with Jacob and Esau. This is how he defines this condition of the kids. Yet before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now, if you're not paying attention, let me just go back and run at those really definite statements and who's the actor in this story. It says, before they were born, before they had actions, in God's sovereign election, not by works. Now, soak in it. What are the conclusions you come to? Here's what you should do quickly if you're honest about your sin and condition. You mean, you mean God saves me in spite of my sin and failure? That my sin and failure can't outrun the sovereign saving hand of Christ? You mean that I, I can't thwart him? That I can't get in the way of him? That when he points his affections on somebody, he gets somebody and it has nothing to do with who they are? Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, same mother, same father, And if you've read the story, Jacob's no shining star either. Nothing about their scenario makes them lovable. God just loves. We love that kind of love. Don't lie. Don't say that you think it's in the way. His grace and mercy are given. They're never earned. Always given. So let me ask you, do you need grace and mercy today? I'll give you the answer. Yes! Everybody here needs grace and mercy. You can have it in Christ. Your confession in Christ gets you grace and mercy. Grace and mercy from Christ by your confession in Jesus. Just think about it. Everyone in our culture is clamoring for for love and performance without conditions. Love without performance, without conditions. But that's not how it works, right? Are you pretty enough? Are you fast enough? Are you successful enough? Are you strong enough? Are you brave enough? Do you get enough likes? Right? All the things that are part of the standard of measuring our, our place in this world. Whatever the markers are, people try to meet to be, quote unquote, and I use this term very loosely, to be loved. And it isn't real love, and you know it. To take the earning love out of love is what makes it love. Do you understand? It's the only way you can have love. Love without conditions. And that's the good news. That's what everyone says, amen, let's sing. I love that. God, that you're not judging me for my failure. You're just loving me. I love that story. But then we trip over this second statement that Esau, as far as we can see it, the bad news, Esau I hated. And here's how we read it. We tend to read it anyway. We read it that as if God is some kind of cosmic bully, arbitrarily hating Esau, and Esau is a victim. That's how people read this. And that's just not true. If you've ever read Hebrews chapter 12, you can see how Esau is described as unholy and ungodly. Eli is just like us. Esau is just like us. He's a sinner. He wasn't a victim of injustice. And that's the point. Esau was a sinner like you and me. Esau was a sinner like Jacob. The Bible says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we're not victims of God's injustice. He is not unjust. Let me just make it really simple. If God says you need to be holy and you're not holy, is it ever unjust for God to judge those who aren't holy? The answer is no. In fact, if he's gonna be just, he judges sin. God is right in his judgments And what you can't do here in this passage, God doesn't exercise his sovereignty to damn anyone. Everyone damns himself by a rebellion against God. Let me just ask you, I don't even know if you're a believer, but if you don't trust in Christ, do you not think you're accountable for your rejection of Christ? If God has made a way for grace and mercy, and his name is Jesus, and you you just keep running the other way or arguing against it or calling it foolish, do you not have to stand? Of course you do, and it's on you regardless of all the behavior. When we hear the word hate, the other problem with it is we interpret it through our lens. I know how I hate. This is not anything I'm boasting about, but I'm a good hater. I've got a gift for hatred. Anybody share that with me? It doesn't happen all the time, but if people cross something, you know that arbitrary man-made line I got in my head, man, I can get just up against them. Um, and so we put that on God. Well, he must hate like I do, cause and effect. That's how it works, you know? You just go too far with him, and then he doesn't. Listen, most theologians that I trust would describe this sentence a different way. They would describe it as loving less. And hopefully I can explain that to you so you know what, what's happening here. In other words, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, is seen in its comparison. So let's take the mountain of grace and mercy and blessing. It's just indescribable. In fact, all the scriptures, it leaks over, and you've heard the old hymn say if the sea was a, 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 a place of ink and you tried to write forever, you could never fill up all the tablets that describe the greatness of God. Just overwhelming amounts of greatness to compare those who experience the greatness of God to those who get nothing. The comparison is so stark that one is seen as love and one is seen as hatred. It's, it's a loving less. Let me use some biblical examples. Uh, we mentioned already Jacob, but Jacob has a story about his women, his wives, uh, way back in Genesis 29, and specifically Jacob had this thing for Rachel. She was beautiful and wanted to marry Rachel. Uh, Rachel's dad pulled a fast one, and he ended up marrying Leah. And even in the text, it tells you that Jacob hated Leah. I'm not true sure, hatred. He wasn't up against Leah. His love for Rachel was so massive and his love was not there for Leah and it was described as hatred. When Jesus was teaching about what it meant to take God seriously and love him with your heart, soul, mind and strength to be all in, Jesus says, if anyone comes to him and does not hate his father and mother, or his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't saying, hate your brothers and your sisters, your mother, your wife, or husband. He's not suggesting against them. He's saying when you love him with everything you got, the comparison between that love and everything else will be described as hatred. Do you understand? Maybe not. All right. So just get your head around this. God's favor, God's love, God's blessing, his election of Jacob was so great that the rejection or the lack of giving that to Esau was described in the text as hatred. Let me try to use another more modern vernacular illustration. So every man in here who's married somewhere, you met her and you decided she's the one and you gave her a ring and you walked an aisle and you made some commitments. And here's what you say, but you don't say. You say to that woman, I'm gonna love you. Which means without sentence, I'm gonna love nobody else. Right? You don't go to the aisle and go, I'm gonna love you and love her. I really love her. I'm gonna love her and her and her. No, that's absurd. You say by saying, I'm all in with you, honey. Everyone else is out. Right? I do not love anyone else. Does that sound harsh to you? Sounds right to you, doesn't it? That's the father's love for his children. I'm all in. I'm all in with you. That means everyone's all out, but you? If you wanna have a sermon from the father to a questioning people who are struggling with sin, he simply says to them, you gotta remember, man, I'm all in with you. I've committed to you. I have an eternal commitment, a faithfulness to you. I love you. You can't shake me. God doesn't come to him and say, I love you too. I love lots of people. That's how you get your security. He says, I'm devoted. The whole point of God reminding his people of his sovereign choice to love them was to wake them up. They weren't neglected. They thought they were. They weren't abandoned. They thought they were. They were loved and pursued. And if they would stop long enough to think about it, they would recall. One writer talked about kind of the massive ways in which God demonstrates his eternal affection for his people kind of described this. He says, when they were ignorant, he blessed them with a true knowledge of himself. When they were weak and defenseless, he empowered them and shielded them from their enemies. When they strayed, he disciplined them. When they persisted in wickedness, he eventually sent the Babylonian captivity as the prophets had warned he would do over the many generations. Then he brought them back to Judah, established them within the walls of the refortified Jerusalem and had them rebuild the temple. There was blessing, judgment, building, and destruction. And in all these things, God had loved them and was continuing to work with them in order that they might be the precious and holy people of God. Look at your life. The things you like and the things you hate the places you are, the conditions you're struggling with, the things you go, God, just take it away, take it away, take it away. And then you start to question whether God's really for you. You're not getting the big picture. You're standing this close to your suffering and you're confused about his eternal love. He is wasting nothing. Not one thing, not one bit of suffering, not one bit of sickness, not one bit of heartbreak, nothing, nothing. He's using all of it to shape his people into a holy people who will have joy in him. All of it, all of it. And in the whole story of Israel, (laughs) and we can see it because we're reading it kind of outside the story. Oh my gosh, they should be totally overwhelmed with God's affections. But they can't see it. They can't see God working, they can't see God loving, but he does. Okay, let's wrap it up. I'm two minutes over. What we're gonna talk about for the next Five weeks is going to feel a little heavy, and I promise you, I don't want it to be. Um, I don't want you to be afraid. I'm not exaggerating. He's going to confront our money, he's going to front our marriages, he's going to confront our false religions and the fakey ways we go about it. If we do it right, if we say it like he says it, it's going to feel heavy. I don't want you to be afraid of that. Um, but I think one way we could finish today would be appropriate as we start. God says, I love you before he spanks us. So I just wanted to say it this way. Why don't we do two confessions today as we leave? One, let's confess what he said. He loves us with an eternal love. Let's confess his great love, and let's confess the second thing. Our love is very, very weak. Our love is not up to that standard. We want to, but we don't quite get there. Let's confess those two things and be honest before our Father. Can we do that together? Yeah? Let's pray. Lord God, we do ask that uh, you hear our cry today. Here's our confession. (laughs) We confess your great love for us. You have loved us in spite of us. You have loved us without performance to please you. You You have given us a savior who's made us new. God, you've loved us with an everlasting love. It's hard to even describe. It's so magnificent, so wonderful, so permanent. But we also confess, God, that we, uh, we don't love you very well. We like to pretend that somehow the circumstances we're in are not fair and they're against us and we blame you, we blame others. Our behavior isn't our fault, it isn't our responsibilities and the standard with which you call us to isn't reasonable. So God, I pray today that we would just confess both how magnificent you care for us and as much as it's hard to say, Lord, we confess that ours is shallow, but we want more. We're grateful even if this text finds us wanting, your grace superabounds for us. God, help us endure this next couple of weeks. Um, Help us to love how you bring truth to us, that we might become the holy people of God. We pray in Christ's name, amen.